Oh well, we'll just let it go. Okay, um, let me go ahead and begin, y'all. So, today, I get to talk about something I really want to talk about. And that's why I chose this passage to talk about, because it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, it's, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And so, listen to this story, or account, of forgiveness. Corrie ten Boom was the only member of her family who returned home after the Holocaust. Due to an error in paperwork, she was mistakenly released from the concentration camp on December 28, 1944. After the war, Corrie began traveling in Europe and America, telling about her experience of survival and sharing a message of God's forgiveness. In her book, she relates an incident that happened while in Ravensbrück concentration camp. One day when she and her older sister Betsy were forced to stand naked, they saw a concentration camp matron beating another prisoner. Oh, the poor woman, Corey cried. Yes, may God forgive her, Betsy replied. And then Corey realized that her sister was once again praying for the souls of the brutal Nazi guards. Years later, while Corey was speaking to a group of people, she recognized a familiar face in the audience. The person approached her at the conclusion of her remarks and Corey felt anger growing inside of her. The individual had been one of the guards at Ravensbrook. He'd asked God to forgive him for the cruel things he had done there, but he wanted to ask Corey's forgiveness as well. And even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them, she writes. Jesus had died for this man, and I was going to ask for more? Didn't he and I stand together before an all-seeing God convicted of the same murder? For I had murdered him with my heart and my tongue. Corey said, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there and hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. Remembering Jesus' words, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. And she then grasped the hands of the former guard, and as I did, she recalled, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and flooded my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. She concludes, you never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. And I personally would add that when God commands us to forgive our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the very forgiveness itself. Forgiveness is always a miracle, and genuine, true forgiveness is always an act of God. It's not the way of sinful, fallen humanity. We seek vengeance. We want payback. Joseph's brothers were like us in their lust for revenge. How do we know this? Shechem. That entire account that we read in Genesis 34 informed us that, starting in verse 25. Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords 
and entered the town without opposition. And then they slaughtered every male there, including Hamor and his son Shechem. They killed them with their swords, then took Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. So, only two of Jacob's sons participated in this act of revenge, right? Well, let's continue reading. Verse 27. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived. Finding the men slaughtered, they plundered the town because their sister had been defiled there. They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys and everything they could lay their hands on, both inside the town and outside in the fields. They looted all their wealth and plundered their houses, and they also took all their little children and wives and led them away as captives. Jacob describes the character of these two sons, the murderous sons, Levi and Simeon, and the prophecy about them that he gives in Genesis 49, 5-7. He says this, Simeon and Levi are two of a kind. Their weapons are instruments of violence. May I never join in their meetings. May I never be a part of their plans. For in their anger they murdered men, and they crippled oxen just for sport. A curse on their anger, for it is fierce. A curse on their wrath, for it is cruel. I will scatter them among the descendants of Jacob. I will disperse them throughout Israel. Simeon and Levi's own father didn't want anything to do with them. He wanted no part of them. And these are Jacob's brothers. Modern psychology would tell us that, that did I say Jacob? Excuse me, I meant Joseph. Modern psychology would tell us that Joseph doesn't stand a chance of not continuing this family character and this way of behaving, this modus operandi, this way of vengeance and anger and deceit. And yet beyond all belief, that's not how this story goes. Joseph was deeply wounded by his brother's betrayal and their intent to murder him. And so when his first child was born in Egypt, he names him Manasseh. Genesis 41:51 says, Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. So all is well, right? They're gone. Forget. All that pain is put to rest to be remembered no more until Joseph's past came calling. At last, Joseph's day of vengeance has arrived. They're back. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, this is verse 42, why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive, otherwise we'll die. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain, but Joseph wouldn't, or excuse me, but Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's, why do they name them Joseph and Jacob? I keep making this mistake, I mean, Judd, oh Lord. Okay, Benjamin to go with him for fear some harm might come to him. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food for the famine in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. 
And when they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. Uh, from the land of Canaan, they replied, we have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he'd had about them many years before. Do you remember the dream? Where Joseph came and said, yes, I see a lot of nodding heads. And he said, um, I had this dream. I dreamt that, that uh, 11 sheaves bowed down before me and mine stayed upright. And they were, you know, and then he had another dream where the sun, the moon, and all the stars bowed down before him. Boy, he didn't win any brownie points with that recounting of that dream. He should have maybe kept it to himself. But what an incredible turn of events. The brothers that, that they had, had mocked and hated, and the brother that they had mocked and hated and sold into slavery, assuming he would not survive and was now dead, this same brother holds their lives in his hands. His day of vengeance has arrived at last. Joseph could have them sold the slaves. He could put them into the same dungeon that he spent so many years in. He could have them beaten and killed. He could treat them with as much cruelty, even more cruelty, than they treated, as they treated him. But there's something different about Joseph. He is not like his brothers. When we consider our children, isn't it true that we look at them and we say, well now who does that child favor in the talents and character? Is it mom? Is it dad? Oh, they remind me of, is it grandparent? In fact, Joseph's not like his deceitful father or his competitive mother or his murderous brothers or his vindictive aunt or his manipulative grandparents. He's not like any of them. He is not like his family. Joseph, who experienced betrayal and attempted murder by his brothers, who experienced great injustice when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And who does that sound like? You see, Joseph is a type. What is a type? A type is a person, institution, or event that foreshadows something significant in the future. English Bible translations use a variety of words to describe such people and things, including portents, patterns, copies, shadows, and types. And Joseph is a type of Christ. Who is he like? He's like Jesus. How is he like Jesus? In many ways, but in our story today, Joseph is a type of Christ because when he has the power to wreak vengeance, he covers his brother's transgressions with forgiveness. He offers them deliverance. He rewards them with a prosperous homeland. Now who does that? Only one does that. Christ does that. And Joseph gives us a glimpse of Jesus and how he deals with his brothers. True, sincere forgiveness is a process. 
and a work of God. The chapters we read in this lesson record Joseph's process of forgiving his brothers. He cries three times, and each time his tears reach deeper into his wounded soul, like a dam that cracks and eventually releases a flood. Remember, he names his son Manasseh, forget. But in these chapters, we realize that God merely put a Band-Aid on those memories. And now Joseph is faced with the memories and his brothers, and we see his pain-filled healing begin. And this is the account of the first crack in the dam that he has, that has been mentally created to wall off the pain. I'm reading from Genesis 42, verse 18. Joseph said to them, I am a God-fearing man. Uh, if you do as I say, you will live. And if you're really, if you really are honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison the rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families, but you must bring your youngest brother back to me, and this will prove that you are telling the truth, and you will not die. And to this they agreed. Speaking among themselves, they said, clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen, and that's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked. But you wouldn't listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. And now he turned away from them and began to weep. And when he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. And then he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied up right before their eyes. We know that this is only a crack in the wall because Joseph can regain his composure simply by turning away. He realizes that his brothers have not forgotten him. In fact, they have carried the memory of what they have done to him all these years. But what is it that Reuben fears? He fears that they are answering for Joseph's blood. And where does that idea come from? Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. Verse 8, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, he attacked Abel and he killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed up your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. When Joseph sends his brothers on their way, he tells them they're not to return without their youngest brother, Benjamin. And when they run out of food, that is what they do. And upon their arrival and appearance before Joseph, the crack in the protective mental dam that keeps his emotions in check, it deepens and it widens and it's strained and his control slips further. Verse 29 of chapter 43. And then Joseph looked at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? He asked. May God be gracious to you, my son. 
Then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his private room and he, when he, where he broke down and wept. After washing his face, he came back out, keeping himself under control. Then Judah stepped forward and said, Please, my lord, let your servant say just one word to you. Please do not be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. And then Judah goes into a long confession. And he says, um, he talks about their father, uh, their father, he talks about their brother who is no longer with them. And when he concludes his confession, he says, so please, my lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? This is in bold words. I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. This is the first indication, and I think it's a pretty deep one, of how Judah's heart has been changing over these years. He didn't care about Joseph's anguish, but God has been working. Upon hearing this, the dam breaks, and the deep, anguished tears cannot be kept any longer. Joseph couldn't stand it anymore. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers. Friends, he was alone with his enemies. His brothers were his enemies. When he told them who he was, then he broke down and he wept. And he wept so loudly, the Egyptians could hear him. And word of it quickly carried to the Pharaoh's palace. There is pain that goes this deep. I cried so loudly when I was healing from the death of my daughter, Lily. I had to go out into the garage and sit in the car so that I wouldn't scare my family with the violence of my crying. I think that this is the kind of crying that Joseph was doing. It's the scary kind, but it's the necessary kind. And Joseph was prepared, and God was speaking to him. I know he was speaking to me out in the car. I couldn't forgive God for what he allowed, but he talked to me. And after the shock wore off a bit, his brothers probably thought, we are screwed. This is it. But God's miracle happens instead. They receive something that they certainly don't deserve. They receive something that if you think about their lives, they've never received this in their entire lives. Have they ever received anything other than dis, you know, disapproval from their father? So now I'm continuing to read in Genesis 45. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing in front of them. If I were him, I'd have whipped off my wig, you know, my Egyptian wig. <laughs> Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. They must have been at a distance. Now he pulls them closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. 
but don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has raged in the land for two years will last for five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here and not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all of Egypt, so come down to me immediately, and I will take care of you here, for there's still five years of famine ahead. Otherwise, you and your household and all your animals will starve. And then he added, look, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that I am really Joseph. Go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you've seen, and bring my father here quickly. And weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin. And Benjamin did the same thing. And then this incredible thing happens. Joseph kissed each of his brothers, and he wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. Have you ever experienced this type of forgiveness, where you have full knowledge of your guilt and the punishment that you really deserve? And yet, you are kissed, and wept over, and forgiven. If you're a believer and a follower of Christ, this is the forgiveness he's given you. So what compels you and I to withhold forgiveness from someone else? Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? I think that was what the Pharisees taught. And Jesus said, no, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he told him a story, and this story just kept going through my head the whole time I was writing this. So I'm just going to tell it to you. There was a king, and uh, he, he had a servant, a steward probably. And um, he decided to bring up his, his counts up to date. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in that owed him millions of dollars and he couldn't pay. So he ordered that the steward be sold along with his wife, children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. That is what this servant deserved. That's what he deserved. But the servant fell down and he begged his master, be patient, I'll pay it, I'll pay it. And then his master was filled with pity for him. And he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat. And he demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down and did the same thing he had done with the king. He begged for a little more time. Be patient. I'll repay you. But he didn't, uh, he didn't forgive his debt. He wouldn't even wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid. And when some of the other servants saw this, they got upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And then the king brought the man in and said, 
you have been an evil servant. I forgave you a tremendous debt, and you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? And then he sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. This is what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Well, let's say you really want to obey God's command that you forgive, but it's just not that easy. What do you do? What do you do when the person that you must forgive doesn't think they need to be forgiven? They say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Right? Have you heard that? God knows that every minute that you spend in unforgiveness is a minute more that the chain of bitterness that binds you to this person gets longer and thicker. It creates a dungeon of unforgiveness and hardness of heart, and you're stuck in it. The work and the power of forgiveness is given to you by God along with his command. One time I was greatly challenged by this and experienced firsthand the power of God to melt my hard heart. I was in a work situation with someone who was very controlling, a micromanager type. And as this person maneuvered me to get me under their thumb and push me down tightly and control me, I began to feel real hatred towards them. I came to Blackmail one Sunday evening for the prayer service and communion that was being held that night, and I had to confess. I approached one of the people who was praying, and I could hardly believe the words that came out of my mouth, but I said, I hate someone. I hate someone. I had written in my journal, I wanted revenge. I, first of all, I just wanted to get out from underneath this person's thumb, but God was not doing that at that time. And in my journal, I'd written, Lord, please help me. And the mental, and this was me, ranting and raving, and I'm going to call this person Karen, right? Good name. About Karen. Uh, release her. And this is so swimming upstream of me from my bitterness. Bring her out of the deep darkness of my unforgiveness. And slowly, as I prayed every day for God to bless her, to help her every day I prayed and my heart began to change and the bitterness began to melt. Forgiveness began to take hold. It began to work its magic and to remove the invisible wall I'd emotionally erected that stood between us. And that's what we do. When we can't forgive somebody, we put up the wall. And then we keep finding reasons why we hate this person or why this person's our enemy. We just keep making that wall taller and taller and taller and taller. But if you pray against it, you begin to care about the, your enemy. You begin to have compassion for your enemy. Was this person my enemy? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And if you'll read through this chapters today, you'll see that Joseph invited his brothers to eat with him. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 23. So, what forgiveness is and is not. Listen to this story of forgiveness. One day in October 2006, ten young Amish schoolgirls in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania were shot and killed in a one-room Amish school. In the midst of their grief over this shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. 
and they didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their sides. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. And lately, later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed. It's ironic that the killer was tormented for nine years by the premature death of his young daughter. He never forgave God for her death. Yet after he cold-bloodedly shot 10 innocent Amish schoolgirls, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed him compassion towards his family. In a world at war, in a society that often points fingers and blames others, this reaction is unheard of. Many reporters and interested followers of the story asked, how could they forgive such a terrible, unprovoked act of violence against innocent lives? Forgiveness is not a feeling. If you're waiting for the feeling to forgive, uh, if, until the feeling to forgive comes upon you, it's unlikely to occur. Forgiveness is an act of obedience to God because we trust Him. God knows that hanging on to revenge and anger and rage can destroy us spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Forgiveness is not pretending that you weren't hurt. It's not slapping on a smiley face and emotionally dying inside. Forgiveness is not saying what the person did is okay. It's not okay. Although Pope John Paul II visited the man who shot him when he was in, uh, in jail, he forgave him. But he didn't think that the man should be released from prison. Consequences happen. And forgiveness is not trusting the person. After betrayal, it's crucial for trust to be earned over time. Forgiveness does not mean you immediately allow the person back into your life or heart. A truly repentant person doesn't make that kind of a demand or misuse Bible verses in an attempt to make you feel guilty. They humbly accept complete responsibility for the sin and willingness and willingly accept the consequences. So what is forgiveness? As we have said, it's a process and it takes time. I had to keep forgiving my coworker Karen. I had to pray for her every day, but I will tell you, she never acknowledged that she did anything wrong. But my heart needed to forgive. God knows this about us. We must forgive, and he empowers us to do it. Because you see, when we step into that command obediently, we step into the very righteous character of God. Forgiveness involves sadness. Joseph cried a lot. Forgiveness requires a time of mourning and grieving for the wrong that has been done. And forgiveness comes from God. We cannot forgive on a supernatural level all by ourselves. And believe me when I say forgiveness is supernatural. In many cases, the person who had hurt you may never take responsibility or give an apology like Karen didn't. Forgiveness only requires you and God, and you know I'm preaching to myself too, y'all, because it does not demand reconciliation. Rather, forgiveness allows release. You no longer have to be tied to the person who has harmed you. So what does God say about vengeance? 
If we do not forgive them, what is there? What's left? Vengeance. And as we know by our news cycle, almost daily, people are choosing to take their day of vengeance, like Simeon and Levi. But we humans, we cannot handle vengeance. It destroys our souls. God has something big to say about it. He says in Deuteronomy 32:35, I will take revenge. I will. I will pay them back. In due time, their feet will slip. Their day of disaster will arrive, and their destiny will overtake them. Vengeance belongs to God because only his anger is righteous. It's holy. He is the one who enacts vengeance, and we submit to his holy command and leave it in his hands alone. And Paul then tells us in Romans 12, 17-19, never pay back evil with evil. Simeon and Levi needed to hear this. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. That reminds me of Joseph. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Joseph kissing his brothers. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. And it's hard because you want to so bad when you get that opportunity. You want to. Don't do it. Scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back. On June 17, 2015, Dylan Roof, a young white man, attended the Wednesday evening Bible study at the predominantly black Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. My sister lives there. We were closely tied into this story. An hour later, Roof pulled a concealed weapon and killed the African Americans as they prayed, including Myra Thompson, the wife of Reverend Anthony Thompson. Myra's murder devastated Anthony, and yet he chose to privately and publicly forgive the shooter. Many in the church and community still struggle to understand Reverend Thompson's deliberate choice to forgive the racist murderer. But as Charlestonians witnessed this incredible act of forgiveness, something significant happened within the community. Instead of the expected race riots, think George Floyd, and aftermath of the shooting, black and white leaders and residents united, coming together peaceably and even showing acts of selfless love. The day of vengeance can only be circumvented by the day of mercy. Joseph chose to forgive, and God heard his cries and gave him a supernatural gift of forgiveness to grant to his brothers. Long afterwards, when the Israelites returned to Canaan, they carried Joseph's bones to rebury them in the promised land. And Joshua 24:32 says this. He says, the bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought along with them when they left Egypt, were buried at Shechem, in the plot of land Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor for 100 pieces of silver. The land is located in the territory allotted to the descendants of Joseph, in the place where Simeon and, jo and Levi took their revenge. Joseph the forgiver is buried. The mercy of God is shown into the land that cried out to God with the blood of those slain for revenge. By the wounds of Christ, we are healed. Forgiveness is our superpower. It's unworldly. It's not of this earth. It's of the kingdom of God. 
It's such a hypocrisy on our part to long for revenge, to be vindictive rather than to forgive. We who have needed and experienced and been forgiven by God, who, and God doesn't need forgiveness, we do. We refuse to forgive, and when we forgive, we bring healing to our communities. When we forgive, we bring God's mercy to our families. When we forgive, as we have been forgiven, we supernaturally participate in the very character of our righteous God. Will we, those called by God's name, will we sow vengeance or forgiveness? Let's pray. Father God, we can't do this by ourselves, as you well know. We need the infilling of your superpower, Father. We need for you to give us the ability to forgive. We, we have been forgiven. Sometimes you have to sit us down and talk about that again to us. But in the areas where my sisters here are struggling with this, I pray you grant them something that they can't do by themselves. They can't even have it by themselves. Your superpower forgiveness, Father. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.